0: is the unseen and I'm your host Mike Clelland. and this week I will be talking with researcher author and experiencer Denise Stoner my initial plan was to ask her about her recent work and this would include two books these are The Alien Abduction Files subtitled The Most Startling Cases of Human-Alien Contact Ever Reported, and this is by Kathleen Martin and our guest this week, Denise, and this was published in 2013. The other book is from last year, from 2019, and it's titled Extraterrestrial Contact, What to Do When You've Been Abducted. This is also by Kathleen Martin, and there are a number of co-authors, including Denise. Denise. I also wanted to talk with her about the experiencer research team at MUFON. Um, Now, during the interview, we touch on these things, the books and her work at MUFON, but most of our conversation was all about her own remarkable personal experiences. And I did not expect that, so I I went into this expecting to follow one track and we totally got sidetracked and and the interview that emerged is much, much more intriguing than the somewhat dry questions that, that I had written down ahead of time. This audio interview was recorded Wednesday, January 15th, 2020. Please enjoy. Denise, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm going to enjoy this very much. Good, and I will too. I um, We spoke at length. I remember sitting at the kitchen table at the Lake House after the event, the Experience or Speak event. I guess that must have probably been around 2013 or so. And I I remember, I think we probably sat there at that table for three hours. At
1: least. And that lake house was a wonderful place to have conversations like that, wasn't it?
0: Yes, it was a very, it was a, so for people who don't know, there's a, there was for mm, several years running a rather small conference called Experiencers Speak, which was completely focused on just the experiencer. And consequently, the audience as well as the presenters were mostly people who have had the direct contact experience. And there was a two-day conference. And then afterwards, everyone went up to the lake house, uh, which is in the family of Audrey Starborn and her sister Debbie, who were running the conference. And that was just, a I don't know, a half-hour drive north of Portland, Maine, in, in a classic New England little sweet you know lakefront environment, and off in the woods. And so it was a really... That was actually more engaging and more rewarding, I think, than the conference itself, That hanging out at the lake house.
1: I would agree with you, because everybody that attended the conference could wander around in the evening with the fire going, and people playing a guitar, and various tables and chairs set up so you could speak to each other, experiencers, the host and hostess, uh, everybody could chat, and and things were shared in in that type of atmosphere that, that weren't normally spoken of.
0: Yeah, sitting around the campfire. I mean, people re- really, no one was talking about the weather, let me put it that way. That's uh, right. Yeah, so, You have just had two chapters that were included in a collection. Um, Kathleen Martin is the editor and wrote several of the chapters herself, and the book is titled Extraterrestrial Contact. What do you do when you've been abducted? And that just came out a few months ago. And for for part of this interview, I want to talk about that. But first, I'd like to ask about your own experiences. And the one experience that is covered in very uh, great detail was the story that was in Kathleen and your book. You wrote a book together. From 2013, and that book was called *The Alien Abduction Files*, and it is subtitled *The Most Startling Cases of Human Alien Contact Ever Reported*. And your case was actually quite remarkable because it because it was substantiated so cleanly by multiple witnesses and by multiple experiencers within the within the event. Um, and would you feel okay just talking about that for a little bit here?
1: Oh, sure that was an experience that involved my husband um, and my parents and friends were waiting for us that night and we had been taking this same trip for over two years almost every weekend and we always drove this pass in colorado over and over again on the weekend in daylight and so we knew it well and It was actually called South Park. It was high desert. There was one straight shot, one road. You couldn't go off that road unless you stopped in a couple of very teeny tiny little towns. One of them was called Jefferson. And I don't know if there was a thousand people there. I doubt it. So we were on a high mountain pass after we left Denver, our home. And we had packed. We were ready to go. The sun was shining. We expected to reach Buena Vista, which was a a town just about seven to nine miles from where our campsite was. And we were driving. We stopped at one mountain pass. There was nothing there except it looked over the valley we were going to cross. And South Park Valley was a huge glacier valley. You could look over it clear as day and see nothing so um, when we reached the place where we usually stopped got out and stretched after driving for oh an hour and a half or so and I looked over that park and again I said it was high mountain desert and I could see strangely a couple of big giant lights way off to my left and I thought I wonder what's going on there is that some kind of reflection Um, it just looked strange but We got back in the car. I didn't comment too much. Just, I guess, thinking about it, asked my husband, what do you think that is? He ignored it. And we went down to the valley floor and headed across towards Jefferson. As we did, I saw those lights coming towards us or towards the road. We passed Jefferson and about four miles outside Jefferson, those lights were now approaching the road, the highway. Because of the time of of day, coming towards evening, there were no trucks, no cars, no one else on that road. Those lights came over the car. I rolled down the window. It was a beautiful evening. And I looked up and noticed that those lights were attached to a huge vehicle of some kind. And then I looked at my husband and I said, what's going on? Well, he was facing forward, his hands were frozen on the steering wheel, and he wasn't responding to me. And on either side of the road were great big snow barriers made out of wood, and also to stop any tumbleweed, which got huge at certain times of the year, and that, when it got dark at night... Would prevent any accidents from the tumbleweed or snow from blowing across the road, so here I'm looking, my husband's not responding, and the car starts to move to the left. It did not turn to the left. the car was moving to the left with this big object over the top of our car
0: and 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 you and you remembered this consciously, yes. Okay. This was a very eerie point in the description in the book, that sliding sensation of sliding sideways.
1: Yes, it was, because the tires were scraping to the left, and I knew that. I I could hear it. And the car lifted up, and it lifted over the snow barriers and went moving into the desert off the road, off the desert floor. And it kept going and moving. And at that time, it wasn't much off the road, but it was uh, several feet in the air. And it moved far, far out into the desert and then landed. And at that point, this object moved over the front of the car and came down in front of us. And when it did, all my memory blocked. I, I did not realize what happened until we came to, I guess you would call it that, on what is called Trout Creek Pass, on the other side of the valley. Now my husband had set the odometer. And when I looked at him, he was then awake. It was then pitch dark, should not have been. A lot of time had passed. The odometer had not changed at all, and it should have It should have shown several more miles, showing we had traveled across South Park. We were now on the other side of the valley, on the other pass. It was dark, and I asked him, what just happened? How did we get here? The engine was running. His hands were on the steering wheel, and we pulled over and started to figure out what in the world just happened to us. We were afraid, but afraid of what? He didn't remember anything. He was just completely blank. All he felt was the fear. And I had been abducted as a child. So the first thing I thought was, had we been abducted, was that a UFO? And then I remembered my parents waiting for us. So we decided we better keep going. We didn't see anything. We drove on into our... Um, campsite and when we pulled in my parents a longtime family friend were walking down the road towards the ranch building because we didn't have cell phones back then they were going to ask to use the uh, phone they were going to call hospitals and police departments and so forth they had come in from Colorado Springs connecting with the only road to the one we were on only quite a bit further down so my dad and a friend were going to get in the car and start driving to try and find us in case we'd been in a wreck after they made the phone calls to see if we were in a hospital or if anything had happened and they saw our headlights turning in and immediately came up to the car what happened where have you been what's been going on and the only thing we could say was we don't know. We absolutely don't know, missing several hours. And my mom was the type that always, she had a need to know. If it was a secret, she wanted secret. So she kept on. What happened? You do too know. You have to tell me what happened. And my dad worked in aerospace, so he could keep a secret really well. And so he just said, it's okay. We'll, we'll figure this out. Um, if it's something that's private to you, That's fine, too. So we went on into our campsite, unpacked, and from there on we had dreams. Um, I had this fear of going to sleep, of being alone, like out in the desert, uh, places like that. So I finally found someone who became a fast friend. He was a doctor, uh, worked with him on hypnosis, and uncovered what went on.
0: You listed so many things in that case that I have heard before that I've had myself. Uh, One of them is just saying the the line, what just happened? Mm -hmm. Like I'm writing up these reports and I've, and from my own experiences, like I've said that more than once, what just happened? And so that is a line that I hear all the time. And I'm sure you do too in your research. Yes. Yes. So that was a kind of a red flag for me, well, not much a red flag because, I, I, I mean, I'm not looking to solve your case, but I'm, i am like, it felt like I recognized that. When you said what just happened there, I just was like, ooh, I've been there. So.
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, I mean, what else can you say?
0: What It's the immediate thing you would say, exactly. It is the thing that just blurts out. Yep. You don't have to think. You don't have to form the question in your mind. It just blurts out, yeah.
1: Yeah, and there's there's nothing. You're searching your mind, um, looking for every possible answer. And I remembered the lights coming across the desert. I vaguely remembered something those lights were attached to, but it had blocked to the point that I couldn't tell you what it was.
0: Very interesting. Hey, we are going to need to take our very first break. For free Dreamlanders, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am talking with my guest and my friend, Denise Stoner. And we're talking about an event that took place in 1982, and this has all the hallmarks of a contact experience, of, a, of a, an abduction. And you were implying just before the break that um, you sought out a doctor and then went through, through hypnotherapy, is that right?
1: Yes, in this case, I did go through hypnotherapy, and it was, I don't know what you would call it, but I saw an ad in the Denver newspaper. A doctor, Romack, was looking for people who were good subjects for hypnosis, and he was wanting someone to come in or people to come in to be tested, so I called it. And I went in, and I was a very good subject. So he took me in immediately.
0: Well, here, and, here, let me interrupt. So we, this had nothing to do, the ad had nothing to do with UFO contact, and your initial meeting with him had nothing to do with UFO contact?
1: That's correct.
0: Okay, very good. He
1: was he was working to see how he could help people um, in pain control. That's what he was working on. And I went to see him, oh, I think it was twice and I really liked him, and I finally got brave enough to tell him what I really was looking for. He immediately agreed to work with me. He had an interest in that subject, and I was not aware of it at all, so we clicked. And for the next five years, we worked together. And he did my hypnosis work. We found out what exactly happened that night. Everything became very clear. Um, he taught me his hypnosis methods um, that I began to help other people I saw what was going on I saw the entities that took me into the craft what they did there Um, he worked on the fear factor with me took that away so that the interest became so strong in me to work with others, that I uh, continued my work after we left Denver and came to Florida. And I became a certified hypnotist myself using a forensic method. And that's where we are now.
0: So what emerged under hypnosis? What, 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 what became of the story once you could use hypnosis as a tool?
1: Well, what emerged was the fact that out in that high desert, I was taken into a craft. They put me on a table. I was examined. I was in, had something inserted that I think was, back then, their lower technology um, item, and it was very, very painful. It was some type of wire. Um, I was screaming in pain, but this ET, a gray, that I realized later on was with me every single time I was taken from a tiny child of two and a half all the way through adulthood. It was the same one would touch me on the forehead and any pain I was going through was taken away, along with fear. And later on, Oh, gosh, I'm trying to think how old I was then. But many, many years later, that object came back out through my foot. And thinking it was an infection, I felt with my finger this raised mound here in Florida. And it ended up being a piece of that wire that had been inserted. And under hypnosis, I remembered it being placed.
0: And then did you still, did you keep the wire?
1: I did not. Um, I didn't ask for it because the doctor removed it. I had an infection, so I wasn't thinking straight at the time. Um, and maybe there was something placed into my memory that I should not or would not be allowed to have it.
0: Very interesting. Now, 1982, I'm, I'm thinking this is, I guess, the, the Interrupted Journey would have been published which had a little bit of medical activity in it. I guess that there was a yes. point in the story. Were you familiar with that book in 1982?
1: I was not, not familiar with any of those books. I was working full-time uh, for National Park Service, and I was busy with our daughter, um, and so I wasn't
0: reading much of
1: anything um, regarding that type of issue, if you
0: want to call it that. Okay, yeah, so so that's interesting. So you came up with a story before the, um, I guess, presently, if you, like, went into any shopping mall, parking lot anywhere in America and asked people to describe UFO abduction, they would describe someone being put on a table and having a medical exam done. It's just part of our collective consciousness at this point. So this, in 1982, would have been before that before it entered our present, I want to say, understanding, but almost like um, the simplistic understanding, because I think there's a lot more going on than just that.
1: Yes, I I wasn't exploring that at all. And I had begun to work with Dr. Romack on hypnosis in several different areas. Um, I had joined a team there who would go out to homes that claimed to have spirits, hauntings, um we were also working as a team who were using uh our mental capacity and capability to look for missing children.
0: Oh, oh, so you were actually using like um you were using psychic means to look for missing children. Yes. There's a thousand questions I have on my uh, right now as far as what to ask next, but <laughs> so so how would you rank your psychic abilities?
1: Uh, My psychic ability became very, very strong after that episode in South Park. Um, And when Dr. Romack and I formed that team that we had, it was amazing some of the things we were able to do. Um, We would get together at least once a month. Um, Dr. Romack has passed away. He passed away suddenly. Um, His wife went shopping, came home, and found him. He had passed a a heart attack on the floor in their living room, which uh, I had been in touch with him even after we moved here. We were very good friends. Um, And the team had split because we were getting very emotionally upset at doing that. You can only do that type of work for so long before it gets to you. The ghost search, going to someone's home and seeing entities, we did nothing with the negative factor. It was all kind of mischievous type ghosts, family members who didn't want to leave, uh, owners of homes people had bought. uh, The original owner was still there hanging on that type of thing um, and freeing them of those spirits, asking them to leave, go to the light, that type of thing. But we had some... Pretty good spirits, and asking them to show themselves, and several times they did.
0: So, so it was you that was seeing the spirits, or could could Doctor Romack see them also? Everybody. How fascinating!
1: Oh, he could see them also. Many people in the team could see them. Um, I'll give you one quick example. We were called to a home. Um, who, when you walked into the foyer, there was a loft with a ledge above where people wanted, the owners wanted to put little plants and decorations and the little ghosts would stand at the top and push the items off onto the foyer floor when people walked in. Um, I don't want to use the word tricksters because that can be bad, Um, but they were jokesters. So we walked in and sure enough, down came a plant and two other items. So we went in and we talked about what was going on and we continued to ask. There were three of them, uh, spirits, family members, uh, who had lived there, uh, if they would please show themselves. And we were there for about three and a half hours and there was a room, an offshoot of the living room, and all three peeked around the corner at their relatives and they saw them. So um, they had died in an accident, so it was like a a death that really wasn't meant to be.
0: All all three of them at the same time?
1: Yes. So um, there they were, peeking around the corner, smiling, and we asked them to please say goodbye, go to the light. Um, We sent them away, and the family was very happy about that. so that was one instance that we attended their farewell. Um, it was really, really a nice, nice time. But they were just rattling things. It was not poltergeist activity. Um, they were just having fun. They thought um, knocking things off that upper shelf. <laughs>
0: so here, let's. What's the difference between a, a ghost and a poltergeist?
1: Poltergeist is. It, it's called a uh, mischievous ghosts and they're not really ghosts they're energy they use energy from any source they can get and mostly it's if there's a teenager in the house who is full of energy um and is probably having you know emotional uh situations going on they can have a Yes
0: yes I I remember being a teenager yes so
1: Oh, Okay. So if they're having problems with their parents or things going on at school, a whole combination of things, and the energy is just boiling over, they can have this type of poltergeist use their energy to start moving things around in the home, tossing books off shelves, breaking glasses, opening and closing cupboard doors, just demolishing the place. And it can get worse before it gets better. Um, and working this teenager, and you have to, that, that's just one example. There are many. A uh, poltergeist is not a spirit you can send to the light. Got it. So that gives you an idea. Yeah.
0: Got it. Yeah. I knew the answer to that, and I was just wanted to, you to clarify it for the audience. And so what happens often, and you've probably encountered this, is that people who have UFO contact experiences will often, in the aftermath, have poltergeist experiences in the home. And and given your definition of what a poltergeist is, one could assume that their energy, somehow their energy got ramped up because of this highly charged experience of UFO contact.
1: Um, That is possible. But then we have to remember, and you probably know this too, is that spirits of any kind need energy to manifest, even if they manifest as a spirit orb. And that's what they're able to do in many cases. But they'll use energy from your lights, uh, they'll turn your lights off and on. That's why some people who have been abducted can can walk up and down the street and turn your street lights off and on. You can. My husband could do that for a long time.
0: And and I, I went through a phase where I felt like I could do that. And it scared me. I didn't like it. I actually went through a point where I, I remember driving down the highway. I was with a friend who also had contact experiences. Uh-huh. And we would drive under the lights and I would point at them. Oh. And they would go off. And I would point at them and they would go off. I did it I think it happened two or three times like we had noticed they were going off as we were driving by them. And then when I started pointing at them, it was like it was like I, it was like some scene out of Bewitched or something like that. They would just blink, go out, <laughs> blink, go out. And I think I did it twice. And then I was like, it it scared me. I didn't like it. And I I stopped. I mean, everyone says, well, wow, that's awesome. And like, oh, it was a, it was an unsettling feeling to do that.
1: Ah, okay. That's interesting that that you felt that way, but then I I suppose you would wonder, you know, what else could happen? What else could you do if you extended that?
0: Yeah, it's you, you talk about like yeah. the paranormal, it's all nice in the abstract, but in the moment, it mm-hmm. can feel it can feel really unsettling. So, I mean, it was it wasn't like I was terrified or anything. I was no. just I was like, "Ooh, I'm not going to point at those lights anymore."
1: and it would have worn off by itself uh, that it tends to after a period of time can be weeks could be a year Uh, i don't recall how long it was for my husband it was quite some time
0: we can explore all of that let's take our second break here and then we'll come back and i want to ask some more stuff about hypnosis all right for free dreamlanders you will hear a few commercials for paying members we will be right back we are back on the unseen with denise stoner and we were talking about ufo contact and all the strange stuff that accompanies that before we took our break we talked a little bit about your hypnosis experience and what emerged under hypnosis for you now hypnosis is um is very controversial in this lore in this subject as far as investigating ufo contact i almost see there's two camps there's one side that says you're going to find the answers through hypnosis and then the other side there are people who are so adamantly opposed to hypnosis that they see it as like as as untrustworthy or even to the point of almost being dangerous and contaminating the entire subject and i i think you could make an argument for both but i would love to find the middle ground in that or or where are you at on that continuum
1: Oh my goodness. Um okay. First of all, um I have taken many courses in hypnosis. The last one I took was in forensic and uh, forensic method and it was very important to me that I did that. Because when you use hypnosis to uncover a lost memory, you realize that, first of all, a person being hypnotized has full control of what they're doing, what they want to do, what they agree to do. Then you realize that that person, if they feel comfortable with the hypnotist, may want to please them, and therefore may confabulate.
0: This is interesting, because I have... There's some things where I recognized that I wanted to please the hypnotherapist. I said some things under hypnosis one time. This this wasn't about UFO contact. It was something else entirely. Mm-hmm. But that's interesting because I actually, I can tap into that, that feeling of wanting to please the hypnosis. You're in this very, like, intimate setting. I mean, it's quiet. You're whispering. Mm-hmm. You know, you're very relaxed. So, you know, you want to be, I guess, polite in a way and want to please the hypnotherapist. I recognize that.
1: Yes, and... The If you're trained well, and you're, this forensic method through the guild was amazing, um, taught me a lot. So when I am helping someone, using the forensic method, you absolutely suggest nothing. You write the script for the individual, and you ask the questions in such a way that you're just... Bringing up, uh, oh, how can I put this? The first question would be, is you have stated you would like to go to the state of Connecticut in the month of, and then you say, what do you see? So you're giving them not a clue. And then I might say, it's evening after 8 p.m. Where are you? So we have to guide them to the place that way, but you're telling them nothing. And eventually, they may come up with that lost memory, um, and then you have to decide after writing their report. And you, you view their emotions Um, which can be pretty heavy, Um, but you've done what's called an intake. Prior to that, just like going to the medical doctor and giving him your medical information, Uh, has there been any kind of abuse uh, in their life? What happened to them as a child? You have all this background information to deal with before you do the hypnosis. So what kind of person are you dealing with? Um, And that can go hand in hand. They could have had the abuse, worked through that, but they could have this going on also. They could have abduction in their life and handled it. But maybe they looked at it through a dim shade, sunglasses type, and They know something happened, but they don't want to live with the fear any longer. So there's an awful lot to consider. You can't come in and say, I want to be hypnotized. The hypnotist says, okay, let's go. No, it takes me sometimes up to three days before we do the actual hypnosis.
0: Very interesting. Now, how much do you trust the information that comes through?
1: You have to be very, very, very careful. Um, sometimes that person that you hypnotize absolutely knows you can't convince them that this did not happen. They know in their soul that it did. Um, and that's theirs to own.
0: So the possibility is that a a, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand this. They could have had a, uh, hypnosis session a story could have emerged and then they absolutely are convinced that story is true. Now the story that emerged may on the simplest level just might be out of order and they could have remembered it out of order or something to that effect or bits and pieces of it could have been confabulated with, with uh, things they've read in UFO books or seen on late night television, TV documentaries. Right. So I agree. Yes. You have to be very careful about, about, or I certainly would need to be and am very careful about what has emerged in my few hypnosis sessions where I've tried to address the UFO stuff in my life.
1: That's correct. And, you know, the emotions, there are lots of questions that we ask, too, um, without the hypnosis to see what do they have in common with others um, who have had the experience? What have we held back? because we do, I do, Kathleen Martin does, just like a crime site. So you, we've got something that we know and you don't. And if you spill that information like perpetrator might do, then okay, gotcha, and we know something
0: happened to you. For instance, like what the light switch on board the UFO might look like. Mm-hmm. And I'm just making that up, but I'm something to that effect. Right. Yeah
1: something to that effect, something done to their body, something, oh, for instance, um, some people claim they know something. They can't get it out. We attempt hypnosis. We can't help them get it out. It is stuck there. And they have a certain specific reaction, all of them, that shows itself And that we don't we don't tell what that is what that reaction is because then a lot of people would possibly have that reaction Um, so we're holding that back for now
0: so here's a question this is completely personal for myself I did two hypnotherapy sessions one with Mary Rodwell Uh and that was in 2017 in the autumn Okay. And then I did one in the early autumn of 2018, a year later, with Yvonne Smith in California. All right. I will say I consider both of those people very thoughtful, very compassionate. Yes, they are. Very dedicated. They have very different methodology. Yes, they do. I mean, I remember, like, and I have the transcript and everything. I I recorded it. I made my own transcript. And they, they... they, you know, they're very different how they approach these things. But the exact same story emerged. When it happened the second time with Yvonne, it felt like, you know, when you turn on a TV show and you watch like, oh, here's the TV show. It's just about to start. And you go, oh, it's a rerun. Uh-huh. That's the feeling I had. It felt like a frame for frame. Like it was like watching the same Gilligan's Island episode exactly again. Uh huh. What emerged and I am very, very cautious of this. Right. And I just wonder, I'm going to ask if if this is something you've heard before. I was on the ship. I looked down at myself. I had long fingers and a skinny body. And and I was short. And I was like, I'm, I'm a gray alien. I'm a gray alien. And then I was like ushered into this conference room. And there was this kind of back and forth. Like, you know, what am I doing here? How Why did I turn into a gray alien? And it's like, now is the time. And it's like, what do you mean now is the time? And it's like, you chose this. You volunteered for this. And And it turns out... It was very very emotional let me put it this way like when that where there was a point in all this where i was like you like i swore at him like i was like you never told me it was going to be this hard and i've told this story too many times on the show so i won't go into it again okay okay so the implication was i had lived a previous life somewhere else whether on another planet or in another dimension or some other galaxy and i was a gray alien in that previous life I had incarnated here on Earth as the person I am now to perform some duty. How often do you get that?
1: Um, I get it a lot. I work also with past lives, helping to recall um, a past life if they can't, or what they've done between lives. Um,
0: so, so, so. Let me. This is common. What I just described is common. Yes. Uh-huh. That's my. That's my sense too. Yeah,
1: to. either they've lived on another planet, and if they did what they thought about it, I get a lot of people that believe they're hybrids.
0: And how do you define hybrid? Because, I mean, hybrid to me would imply that you could just go and get a DNA test, and, and you could, you know, s- analyze the results and say, well, the, you're, not, you're not completely human. But I don't think that's what's happening. I think hybridization is much more at a soul level than at a true physical level. Am, am I reading into that correctly?
1: Um, yes, I think so. Um, Have you read a book called Journey of Souls? No. You should read that book, Journey of Souls. It's going to tell you a lot about making decisions.
0: Hey, this is Mike. I am chiming in during the editing. Denise mentioned a book, and the title is Journey of Souls, Case Studies of Life Between Lives by Michael Newton, Ph.D., and it was originally published back in 1994. Interestingly, this same author and the same book was referenced in a recent interview with Sharon Hewitt Rowlett. This is going back just a couple of weeks, and this is the kind of thing, these two references within a few weeks, uh, it it makes me want to read this book now. And to make things a little more interesting, I am actually listening to one of his books on audio. The book is called Destiny of Souls, and the book that Denise referenced was the initial book in what turned out to be a series of books. Okay, back to the interview.
1: Journey of Souls is going to tell you a lot about making decisions. Um, It doesn't necessarily bring up anything to do with hybrids or ETs, but it talks about decision-making and people that went to this individual for hypnosis work to find out why uh, they're here now, how they choose, why they choose soul groups, and it's very, very fascinating. So some of the hypnosis work I've done um, finds people. Just recently I found out, including myself, that I was involved with um, crafts coming where I was in a past life, And the whole town, it was actually an old mine where we were gold mining, silver mining, and they would come up over the valley and we would all run. I haven't gone so far as to find out whether or not we were captured.
0: How interesting.
1: Yes. So how many past lives were we involved? How many did we sign up to go to another planet, possibly in between? I know I was in one. It has to do with my great love for water. Um, it, but I didn't really learn anything in that life. It was just kind of an R&R type thing.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. And that's, I've, I've read a few books on this, and that R&R thing shows up every once in a while. We're like, I'm just going to take it easy for this life. I had a lot of trouble with the other bunch of them, and I don't want to repeat that. So uh-huh. Now, here's where I'm at. I did a, in 2014, I did a past life hypnotherapy Session uh-huh. with a woman named Lorraine Flaherty. It is covered in two episodes on Dreamland from a couple of summers ago, and it would be easy to look up on on the site here. Uh-huh. But I had issues of clinical depression. I'd suffered from it since I was twelve years old. Uh, I'm uh-huh. I I I was like seeking any resource. I had tried medication. I had tried all kinds of things, and. I did this hypnotherapy session. Uh Uh, Some events emerged in a past life with a soul group that was basically my parents. And something went terribly wrong in my past life. And the implication is that the trauma of that bled over into this life and it it manifested as clinical depression.
1: Ah, okay.
0: Now, I sat up in the hypnotherapist chair and was like, I am cured. Like, I felt it, like it's over. I'm cured, uh-huh. and I. No, I'm knocking wood here. I have been healthy, no, no episodes for 2020 mm-hmm. now, so that's six years, and I have not been able to say that since I was 12 years old. Now, so I was like, like I don't care. Like it was, I was presented with a story that was so over the top in its imagery, and it's like it was like it would it would have made like a. Uh, a, a good opera let me put it that way it was that kind of crazy so but I I just don't I'm very cautious to trust it as fact but I don't care I reap the benefits I feel like I went in feeling one way I came out feeling another way I have remained healthy for the last six years and that is remarkable
1: yeah and so inside yourself you know it's just something you know no one can convince you otherwise and that's when I believe the person unquestioned?
0: Well, I don't know. I don't know if it really happened. But I know that I reap the benefits.
1: You reap the benefit. But don't you feel inside, possibly at the soul level, that it did happen?
0: possibly oh yeah possibly but I can't but I would I'll go crazy I know enough about myself like I, I'm yeah. too analytical on one sense oh. if i if i if I get locked into that I'll just get stuck and i'll i'll figure out a thousand ways to make myself crazy so I have okay. to for my own sanity <laughs> back off and say maybe uh-huh. it happened and i can't I can't get stuck in that that merry-go-round of trying to prove it or trying to truly believe it all I can say is what I can say is I reap the benefits and I don't care whether it really happened or not
1: Yeah, so you don't want to do that. Well, an example of myself. I was very, very ill when I was 20. That's 1969. And I had a double stroke. I had major surgery. Should not have lived. But my personality prior to that was let people walk all over me, not stand up for myself. Very mousy person, when I was ill, I met the person who I was in the life prior to that one, and I changed back to that personality, so that when I survived, even when I came out of that in the hospital room, in ICU, people said, who is she? That's not the person that came in here and almost died. My handwriting changed. People think I'm left-handed, totally, and I'm not. My handwriting is so different, and a handwriting analyst couldn't identify it as me before and after. I know who I am, and I know who I changed places with. It's still me, but it's who I used to be. And I like me better. Um, even my husband said, you're, you're not who you were. You're, you're somebody else. Well, I've told a great majority of people who I am. My middle name now was my first name back then. And so there are a lot of commonalities with that person. I don't know why it happened, but it did. And I walked into, it took, oh gosh, I think it was late 1970s, I walked into the house that had been mine. And I knew it. And an older woman came in to the house. She was wearing my dress in my past life. I think she recognized me.
0: So wait a minute. So you physically went to that house? Yep. So this wasn't, you weren't seeing a ghost of this other woman. You were seeing a real woman.
1: Right. I have a book. She autographed it for me. It wasn't a book. It's a brochure. And I asked her, I said, where did you get that dress? And she said, they found it in a trunk in the attic. And I knew that dress was mine. I knew it.
0: So the day you arrived at this house, she was wearing the dress that she found in the trunk in the attic. Yeah. So that's like a synchronicity, that's like a coincidence, a powerful coincidence that, um, like I'm at this point now where like the, the fabric of reality, I, I am convinced, is like knitted together in order to produce these powerful, meaningful coincidences.
1: Yes, and so it's, you it know, I've seen my grave, not in person, but I found it online. Um, there are just so many things. Um, that I've put together. I don't question it. I just know it.
0: So you're, the term walk-in, is that, would that be accurate?
1: Yes, but of my own self in a past life.
0: How interesting. How interesting. Yeah. Now, did you did you have a near-death experience during this event? Yeah. So you physically at a certain point died and was resurrected, or did you under a, in a coma, or here, I don't want to lead you in any way. What happened?
1: no, you no, you can't leave me because it was totally different. I was being wheeled into surgery. It was going to be exploratory surgery. And I decided I was not going to do that. I was looking at the doors to the operating room and I said to myself, and this I figured, this is how people can leave if they want to on a conscious level. They repeat to themselves. They want to talk to the subconscious or the soul, and say, I'm out of here. You connect with that, and you are out. Because I decided, uh, this is, uh uh-uh, no more this. And the minute I did that, I was popping up to the ceiling, and I watched my body go through the double doors to the operating room, and I kind of said, bye-bye, have have fun, because I'm not going back. And when I said that, I saw the tunnel that people talk about. And I headed for that. It was up in the corner of the hallway in the hospital room. And I headed for it. And I was stopped. And I, So I put what I thought. I never looked. But I put what I thought were hands and feet on the corners of it. And I kept trying to get in. And I was pushed back. And a voice. I never saw anyone. I did see a light at the end of that tunnel and it was swirling and the voice that I heard was very masculine said you cannot come just now you have and this is what's been crazy since 1969 you have one more thing to do before you can come through
0: and and what is that thing
1: Uh, I don't know still don't know
0: are you doing it right now are you doing it right now with your UFO research
1: I, I I don't know. Is that part of it? I I just have no idea. So I started to fight to try to get in there. I thought, no, I'm done. I really am done. So I'm going in, and I got turned around, and I felt two hands, one on each shoulder blade, and pushed. And I started to fight, and I was kicking, and thrashing, and I was shot through the double doors, and I saw my body beneath me suddenly. I opened my mouth. I went in through my mouth head first. I went into the body, spun around, and when I spun around and turned, then my body, the physical body, started to kick and thrash. I I was trying to get out and go back, and I couldn't. And the nurse was saying, you're going to pull the tubes out. You're going to pull all the tubes out. And I opened my eyes and thought, "Oh no!" <laughs>
0: now, at, yeah. at any point in this, did the doctors did you did your heart stop while you were on that?
1: Yes. As soon as I got out, I went into shock, and they said, um, "Should we start CPR? Whatever they used, what term?" And the doctor said, "No, we're going to be in there in, in a minute," and she, put her under so no just wait because they knew it was only going to be a few seconds and so and I went and they did the emergency surgery I have no small intestines they cut out well three feet out of 22 is what I have left and um, they took some of my stomach and they said I probably was not going to survive so because I'd already had the strokes and uh sewed me up and said, okay, back then they didn't know that we would be doing all that type of surgery for weight loss. So they figured I would die of malnutrition. It is the total opposite. (laughs) So um, my body compensated for the loss of all that after a while.
0: I'm going to ask this question. This is something that Ann Streber would have asked. Uh Uh-huh. Are you a shaman? Do you consider yourself doing a shaman's work?
1: I have, yeah, and I do.
0: Have you considered that? Have you used that term to describe yourself? No. Okay, but you know what I'm asking, I guess. Yeah, I do. Okay, okay. So yep. so the, in my research, when people have had both the near-death experience and then also UFO contact, mm-hmm. these people from my research, are highly psychic in a way that, that, that I have recognized as a, as a almost universal pattern. I'm sure there's exceptions to the rule. I haven't found any, but I've talked to a lot of people who have had both the near-death experience and the uh, UFO contact experience. They are highly psychic. Many of those people are shamans. And I ask that because I just, now shaman is a sort of highly charged word, in a sense, and a lot of, there's no easy definition for what that might mean. So, here, let me ask this. How much of your, I guess your job or so, is is helping people?
1: I would say pretty much all of it.
0: That's what I'm, that's what I sense too, yeah. He, the healing work that a shaman would do is no longer done by a you know, the guy at the corner of the, of the village, you know he comes out of his teepee and chants or, you know, dances all night. Now the same work is done in Reiki therapist offices. It's done through psychic means. It's done through, through, I almost want to say radical compassion. Uh-huh.
1: The... Yeah, I do a lot of listening, um, and letting people spill what they have to say. Um, what I found out I could do by accident, and it was watching TV, looking at the eyes of actors, and I could tell they were going to pass away within 12 months. And I thought, what what is this? I didn't know what I was seeing. And then I started looking at humans, people, here like coworkers, and I could tell if they were doing it to themselves, if they were making themselves ill, and I did not want that gift. I didn't, I, so I stopped. I found a way to stop it, because if they were doing it to themselves, there was nothing I could do to help. So um, now... I'm a Reiki master. I found oh, my I,
0: own. Well, I had no idea. I had no idea. I just blurted that out because that is, that is such a pattern that I'm finding yeah. in, my, in my own work. So keep on going. I'm sorry. I apologize for interrupting.
1: Yeah. And then I use, I think a lot of people do because I ask about it if I know others that are Reiki, uh, have Reiki. And I use my own method after you use that. For a while, you start to find things that you feel you should use. Um, So I have used that, my own method, my own ways. um, And so, yeah, I think a lot of us have healing ability. um, And that is hard because if the person doesn't accept it at the soul level, it's not going to work. They have to want it, and they also. It depends on their. I call it a contract. It depends what they signed before they came here.
0: And that that goes back to my own past life hypnotherapy session. You know, like what did I? What, what was I trying to do in this life that I was that I needed to solve from my previous life? Yeah. Uh, again, I'm seeing that in totally metaphoric terms, but I recognize the challenges I've been through in my life are all about. You know creativity and my role as an artist in a way, and I have I've been always been very uncomfortable with that. So, so I here when I get, was getting ready for this interview, I wrote all down all kinds of questions about Mufon and about like really standard dry uh, investigative techniques and such, and and I did not expect this much more mystical conversation to emerge.
1: Oh, I I do an awful lot with an awful lot of things because I keep. Bumping into that part of me, um, and I, then I have to take a look at it. Um, and do I use it? I do, and most people don't know. I have some very close friends who know it, and that's it. But now I just told you. <laughs> well,
0: awful. well, so yes, but I mean, this is of this is this is what I'm. I mean, this is what I'm finding in myself, in a way mm-hmm. that I have. Uh, you know, I wrote the, this stuff about owls and UFOs. And and what has happened is people are finding me. Like, you Google UFOs and owls, you're going to find me. So I have been collecting and archiving and trying to make sense of a m- avalanche, a flood of owl and UFO stories. Yes. Um, so, and you have an owl experience, too, if I remember. We talked about that.
1: Yes, had an owl experience, and um, there was another giant bird of prey. Uh, They're larger than the norm, most of these birds. Um, You may be going down a less-traveled road um, off a highway, or you're on a road where there's not much traffic, and a giant bird can come um, and literally stop you. You have to stop the car in order to avoid hitting the bird, and it will walk, well, that's what it did with us, either fly by your windshield, you have to stop, and it will continue around the side of your car looking at you. It's not the norm for these animals. We had one, I think it was an eagle, if I recall. It was so tall that while it was standing on the road, it could just about see into our front windshield,
0: over the hood, or?
1: Yes. Over the hood.
0: Okay, so we're we're talking, so that's probably unrealistic for any known eagle on the planet.
1: Right. And it walked around to the, the driver's side where my husband was. We were on a mountain pass um, outside of Gunnison, Colorado. And when it came to his side, it could see in the window. And I, I was afraid of it. And I was afraid it was going to be another time that we were taken. And I wanted us to pull away. I was afraid we were going to kill it. I was afraid to move, not to move, didn't know what to do. We finally did drive on um, and did not hit it. But I don't know where it went when we drove away. It did not fly away. It just kind of disappeared from the road. Um, Very, very strange type of animal. This can happen outside your window you look out and then you say to yourself, something about that animal doesn't look normal. You can't quite figure it out at the time. The bird's too big. The eyes are too big. The eyes don't look normal. They kind of shape-shift into that almond look, especially if it calls you outside and you're indoors.
0: Okay, the story you just told, I'm getting it's a bit of an exaggeration, but I'm getting that story a couple of times a week in my email inbox. I'm, it is what you're describing. You are not alone. Now, the way I desc- this is a, kind of a dig at Mufon in a way. I am saying for my type of research, what what floats my boat, the stuff that's well, let's say let's say. I mean, I like these kind of mystical stories, and I, I, they really have a, a seductive draw for me. But at the same time, they're finding me. Obviously, I put some energy out and. And I'm requesting these stories, but wow, I'm I, I can't tell you how overloaded I am with this stuff.
1: Well, believe it. I mean, they're deer,
0: deer. Yep, owls, deer.
1: Um, what else? There are several
0: squirrels, fox. Yeah, I've heard a lot. Yeah, oh,
1: fox. Absolutely, the fox.
0: And these are all totem animals. These are all highly charged totem animals. These are mm-hmm. these are these are. Archetypes imbued with spiritual symbolism. So, yes. so what I say is, when I do this work, there comes a point. Yes, it's very important to say what time did you see the UFO, which way was it traveling, can you draw a picture of it, all that stuff is important. But there comes a point when you have to take off your mufon hat, right? You have to take off your your nuts and bolts investigator hat. You got to take it and push it aside. And you got to pick up your shaman hat and put on your shaman hat, and then ask the question a shaman would ask. Right. Now, I'm going to just, I'm riffing here. I don't know if this is right or not, but the owl is symbolic of the night. Mm -hmm. When you saw the eagle, was it daylight?
1: Yes, it was daylight. It was late afternoon, so the sun was on its way down. Okay. Um, But, you know, I I would discount the fact that it was going on evening. It was just there. We could see very clearly. Um, High Mountain Pass, snowy. It was standing in the snow in the road. Yeah. Looking right at us, very much as far as concentration.
0: So the eagle is a male symbol. Like Zeus, Jupiter had an eagle. You know, and and the uh, uh, the owl is a female symbol. Mm-hmm. Athena had an owl. Now that the eagle went to the the side with your husband, yes, is telling to me. So that's a so. I have no idea whether I'm right or wrong in this line of thought, but it's 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 the way my mind spins when I'm confronted with these kind of symbolic experiences.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, it draws a person. Um, I don't know if it uses your energy, if it, if it is able to connect with your mind. Um, yeah, I always ask people. Okay, you saw the fox. You saw the deer because they're beautiful animals, and they are totem animals. So what did you feel? You were drawn to go outside. What happened when you went outside? You were told to follow this animal uh, to a place in the woods or down the road where there were no humans, and it started to transform into something you didn't recognize. Its eyes changed, became almond-shaped. Um, and then the body itself turned into one of those little greys, and it got you.
0: And I'm arguing, as more of a thought experiment, I'm framing this in a way that I want it to be. That doesn't make it true, that I want it to be this, but I'm framing <laughs> this. But Hopkins told me straight up, the reason they, they people see owls is because the grey alien looks kind of like an owl. Uh-huh. And it does, right? It's got big eyes. Uh-huh. And so I'm arguing that it is choosing these animals for their archetypal meaning. Like there's an there we have a deep in our subconscious, we all have an inner, deeper knowing of the symbolic meaning of an owl, and a symbolic meaning of a deer, and a symbolic meaning of an eagle or a fox. These are these are all animals with a rich Spiritual tradition in folklore, mm-hmm. yeah. So they're tapping into this on, on that level for a reason. I can't say that's true or not, but I, I, I am happy to frame it that way for myself personally, and, and I think that you know, Bud Hopkins saying it's they they choose an owl because alien gray aliens look like owls, may or may <laughs> not be true. That's yeah. a, that's that a clean fit, but right. That why don't they just be invisible? Why don't they just you know magically use? Telepathy to just right. make us do their bidding. I don't know. So, okay, uh, here you have shared some extremely mystical experiences on this show. You are working with Mufon, correct?
1: Yes, I'm. Um, I work with the Experiences Research Team which is a team that specializes in those who have been taken. Um, We have uh, psychologists, uh, specialists, as far as someone like myself, who I have a background in psychology. I'm not certified, but I have enough knowledge to know who to turn the individual over if they need someone as far as a pastor or... uh, help with a doctor, that kind of thing. Um, There are about 30 of us, a couple in the UK, a couple in other countries, and then those of us that are here. So that team I work for. And I'm the assistant state director for the state of Florida um, and work cases that way. I have private cases also. And I'm the paranormal specialist um, for the team.
0: So MUFON is an organization that i i would call pretty conservative and how 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 is this team fitting in and more specifically how are you fitting in with all of this
1: well it's very interesting because that uh team the research team is a new branch that was designed and begun by Kathleen Martin and if it hadn't been for her this would not have happened. And that branch sticks way out. And so some of the things that we do is not really... We're still trying to fit, let's put it that way. We are still trying to fit. Um, And once that individual that signs up and fills out our questionnaire for research and for us to contact them, and then they turn around and fill out a case management report, and the two now meet, that is where it gets difficult, because a field investigator is out working with UFOs, and now we're working with them being taken, and how did those two meet?
0: And, and is there tension within the organization?
1: I wouldn't call it arguments or that there's a bit of tension because if you get a field investigator, like many out there, who doesn't believe in abduction? They just don't think it happens. They haven't come around that far. So they either have to turn it over to another field investigator and say, I can't handle this case. I'm still learning. I don't know where I stand. So it gets turned over to someone else.
0: Okay. Very interesting. Now, I scanned the list of of folks on the uh, experiencer research team. There's a little uh, list of them and a bunch of little pictures. There are portraits there. And um, I know a handful of them, a few. Uh-huh. And yeah. I have had conversations with a few, and they've had the direct contact experience. Yes. So my sense is you don't get on that team. Well, let me let me rephrase that. My sense is that a goodly number of the people on that team have had the direct contact experience. I'm just intuiting that. Yes. Okay. And that is important to me because I feel they're going to be the ones who are capable of the most compassion.
1: Uh-huh. True. We keep taking on more because we need so much help. <sighs> It's it's a, it's a difficult, well, it's like, let's take religion. We have, um, well, we have Catholics and Protestants, and we have, you just keep naming it all the way down the line. How do they connect? Not easily, not easily at all. And then we have the non-believer. Uh, how do you fit an atheist in that mix? So you could do the same thing with abductions and trying to make this all work. Is really a mess, <laughs> but we're trying. We're we're getting there.
0: Well, good, and I'm glad to hear that because I I, I recognize there was a chapter of, of MUFON, where that wasn't the case, and this yeah. is this is really good for me to hear. And I mean, you know, William Kunkleleski. I think we talked about this before.
1: Yes. Oh gosh. Yes.
0: Very sweet guy. He's the state director for Michigan. He's also an experiencer. Yeah. Very very sensitive, compassionate guy. Yeah. And very thoughtful, and and I'm glad he's in the role he's in. Yeah,
1: he's he's funny. He, oh,
0: he's, he's yeah gregarious. Just, yeah, he's from Michigan. I'm from Michigan too. I, I tap into his energy so cleanly, uh, <laughs> so I know just where uh, he's coming from. There's a kind of vibe, you know. People in Michigan are really nice. So yes, yeah. Now we've gone a little long. Mm-hmm. I have a big, long set of questions that I wrote beforehand. A lot of it had to do with the tensions and MUFON and what I was perceiving, and I wanted to double-check things. I didn't get to any of that, maybe two minutes of that. <laughs> but this has been a remarkably rewarding conversation. I did not expect it to go this deep. Oh uh, Well, I'm really pleased.
1: Um, there's so much more, so if you'd like, please have me back.
0: I would love it, yeah.
1: You know, oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I'd like to come back.
0: Good, because I feel like we just were barely getting started, and, and uh, <laughs> the clock the clock ran out on us. How do people get in touch with you?
1: Well, basically, my email. Believe it or not, my website was hacked. I took it down. I haven't had time to set up another one. I'm wondering if I should, but Stoner, the number one at gmail dot com it would be nice if they hear this to let me know that they did hear this on the radio and always fun
0: good wonderful and and I will put a link to both of the books uh, that you worked on with Kathleen Uh on the show notes and um, I know Whitley just recently did an interview with Kathleen on the recent book Yes, the extraterrestrial contact book and I will put a link to that also on the show notes Denise, this has been a delight. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, and it has been for me, too. This has just been such a pleasure, and the time went so fast.
0: (laughs) It does. It spins right by. It spins right by. There's, There's so much more we could cover, and I look forward to digging deeper.
1: All right. Wonderful. Thank
0: you. This is Mike and I am chiming in after the editing. Now Denise and I talked just a little bit in the minutes before we recorded this interview and and we've also spoken at length in person a few times. And like nearly everyone else who has had these kinds of experiences, she has a lot more stories to share, much more than a single hour allows. Now, during the talk, I mentioned that there is a long list of people working with MUFON on their Experiencer Research Team. On the MUFON website, there's a, there's a big, long list of people. And under the headline, which is the Experiencer Research Team, there's a follow-up line. It says, Dedicated to Helping Experiencers of Alien Contact. Now, I know a few people on this page, and I respect them enormously, and I hope this team can do some good. I've talked with a few of these people, and from what I can tell, they are totally overloaded with people reaching out to them for help. I get the feeling that these experiences, these contact experiences, are much more common than anyone would dare imagine. So hopefully, in my opinion, a somewhat conservative research group, MUFON, can, can take this to heart and really dedicate themselves to helping these people. These are traumatic experiences. I really hope this team can help. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.